Okay, we could do this. We just honestly, we just need to get to the plot. Like, maybe, I think once we get there, we're maybe golden. we shouldn't have done this at four o'clock <laughs> after a work day. <laughs> I feel like that was a real downfall. <laughs> everyone, welcome to Adapted for Your Viewing. My name is David, and I watch too many movies. And my name is Amanda, and I read too many books. We are brother and sister, and this is our podcast for nerds, where we talk too much about movies and shows based off of books, and then we tell you which one is worth consuming. Mm-hmm. And today we will be talking about The Giver. This is the classic 1993 book, mm-hmm. as well as the 2014 movie. So if you are unfamiliar with either of those, first of all, at least go check out the book. At the very least, least. go check out the classic book. Uh, But if you have it, make sure you go back and check them out before listening to this because we will be spoiling everything. Yeah, you don't have to, but we will be assuming that you are a nerd like us and have taken copious notes on both things and have come here to tear them apart with us. Yeah, I want to check everyone's notebooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, please bring your book so I can yeah. check all the underlined annotations yeah. that you're required to do for this class. <laughs> this is AP English. I forgot to say. <laughs> Welcome to our AP English podcast. Yeah, just uh, exchange them with the partner to your left. And uh, we'll do some group grading here on our system. Group grading. Yeah. yeah, I always gave that person an A. Yeah, I, I know, care. me too. I would hate the per- I hated the person who was the jerk who was like, oh, you didn't do this part. Mine is 10. It's like, dude, we're reading Shakespeare. Yeah. Chill the also, heck out. we're 15. Calm down. Yeah, come on. I don't know myself <laughs> yet. All right. Uh, anyway, back to the yeah, giver. Yeah, giver, uh, right. <laughs> for those who need a refresher, The Giver is by Lois Lowry, not Lori, <laughs> like every human being used yep, to say. I still want to say it that way. I still want to do it as well. And it is about a boy named Jonas living in what seems to be a utopian society where there is no crime, no discrimination, and everyone pretty much has all their needs met. And so Jonas is about 12 when the book is happening. And at that age, he is assigned the job of the receiver where he collects memories of the human race. And at first, they start off very small you know, kind of nice, joyful things, but uh, quickly turn kind of dark, just like the human race. (laughs) Uh, As he receives them, he starts to question his society uh, Mm. in this whole idea of sameness that is in the entire book. And in the end, it sort of ends in an ambiguous sequence of Jonas reaching a hilltop where he either escapes the society he was in or it's one big delusion and he dies. Yeah, it's one of those. And the book at the time, yeah, it's one <laughs> of those. At the time, the book kind of left it up for interpretation. Mm-hmm. So that's saying, Amanda, what was your first experience with this book? Yeah, mine uh – this was a childhood love of mine. I This was a book that really defined kind of myself as a reader. Uh, I vividly, vividly remember reading this. So I actually didn't read it in class. Uh, like a lot of people I know, they, instead of being part of that, um, I somehow missed it. We changed a bunch of school districts when I was in middle school. And so when I was in seventh grade, everybody, all of my friends, uh, the previous year had actually read it in sixth grade with a class. And um, instead, I read Harry Potter and it was awesome. But I felt some huge, deep FOMO, <laughs> even at a, even at that young age, uh, that I thought that I was missing out on like the coolest book ever. And so I read it on my own. And I think that made it an even more intimate experience because it wasn't like a teacher was telling me to do it. I didn't like have a class to discuss it with. It was just like me and the book and that's it. And I remember finishing it and being so like, I remember panicking and I felt it when I reread it for uh, to record this in the past, like in the last five pages of the book, I remember panicking and being like, hold on this can't be it. Like there's, there's <laughs> gotta be more that happens. There's no way that like, he's going to get to the end of this and he's just out here in the wilderness. Um, and to have it end in such an ambiguous way was really shattering for me. It shattered a lot of expectations I had about books up until that point. Uh, cause until then I had read a lot of books where all my protagonists had plot armor and they were totally fine. And then all uh-huh. of a sudden in like this, this George R. R. Martin experience, um, my protagonist was fragile and could totally beef it. 
<laughs> and it was, <laughs> yeah. Yes. And it was, it was such a different experience. And added to that, like The Giver is not really a plot driven book, right? It's, there's no classic antagonist in the book, at least. Um, it's a lot of internal struggle and um, man versus society struggle. And the choices that Jonas makes are what drive the book forward as opposed to anything else. And that was really different for me at the time. And so I, loved this book. I was pissed at it at first. Um, like really, really pissed. And I didn't have the internet at the time to be able to go on Tumblr and yell about it or look up it on Wikipedia to find out what actually happened to him. Um, but I kept thinking about it for years and years after that. And uh, I came back and reread it so many times. Um, so this has really been kind of the book for me in my childhood. I loved it. So this was like the cornerstone yeah. or the foundations yeah. of, of you becoming mm-hmm. of. Yeah, yeah, that makes complete sense yeah. <laughs> now when I look back at it. Yeah. Uh, what about you, David? When did you first interact with this book? Well, it's funny that we said like all middle schoolers, for the most part, were required to read this book. But you and I both didn't really have to, nope. thanks to our school districts, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't have to at all. So I skipped this book and my first interaction with with it was at like a scholastic book fair. Mm, love those. Ugh, I miss those so much. Yeah, all the erasers uh, and pencils you could get. The magazines that with frogs on them. Yeah, yeah, I want to spend all of our parents' money. Yeah. They did not have enough money. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. Uh but so my interaction was it or my interaction with it was the fact that that old man was really old and I didn't want to read a book with a boring old man. I wanted to read a book with, like you said, with more action and more plot. Uh, So I read about a chapter and got bored. It's funny you say that because I totally judged the book by this cover. I was like, Oh, is this book going to be about an old dude? I don't want to read about old people. (laughs) Exactly. And when I think about it, there really isn't like a good cover for it either. So it makes sense. You want to hear a book fact? All right, book fact. Um, that guy on the cover is actually a painter, uh, a famous painter that Laurie was a huge fan of, and she thought that he captured color better than anybody else, and that's why he's on the cover. Huh. Mm-hmm. Well, looks like me as a sixth grader had no appreciation for the oh, arts. Oh, no, no, no. 13-year-old me was a huge jerk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so me reading the this book for this podcast was the first time doing it. And man, I made a mistake because I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, so do you want to hear some more book facts? All right. Hit me up with some more book facts. Yeah. Let's do the download of the, the DL. Of, no, that's not what that means. <laughs> let's, let's look at the book facts. <laughs> You're still hip. You still got it. I still got it. <laughs> um, oh, boy. Uh, so this book it was published in 1993. It was a huge deal when it came out because dystopian wasn't really a thing. Uh, it was a thing for like high school aged and college aged uh, books, but nothing really geared towards middle grade like this one is. This one is very clearly meant for a younger audience. Um, and in fact, the whole dystopian genre really wouldn't be popular for teens for like another decade after that. Uh, it won the Newberry in 1994, which is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was added as required reading for everybody in middle grade in the U.S., Canada, and Australia, except for the Wangerts, apparently. Nope. We totally missed that. We didn't get any of it. <laughs> we didn't get any of it. Uh, so if you weren't us, there's a good chance that that's where you first read it in school. Uh, it is the 11th. It was the 11th most requested banned book in the U.S., uh, during the 90s because it explores adult themes like euthanasia, censorship, and it mentions sexual awakening, which parents were not happy about. I could imagine. Yeah. 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 Um, it has since been adapted into a play, a musical, an opera, Ooh. a graphic novel, which is very good. I read it before this. I ordered it over the weekend and obviously into a movie. We got to find that bootleg of the opera. It's somewhere out there. I know. It's on the dark web. The more we web. talk about this, the more I want to, I want to just, I want to understand what they're singing about. Yeah, me too. Like, it's not I mean, exactly a. Do you think it's an Italian? Like a classic ooh, opera? Ooh, if it's a classic opera, we got to see that. Yeah. I bet it's like, I bet it's really boring. <laughs> <laughs> 
that makes sense. That makes sense. I just feel like it's probably really It's boring. probably fairly boring. Okay. But I guess if you go to the opera for excitement, you're in the wrong place. That's, that's, uh, don't, I bet there's some people who are very angry right now. Yeah. Like, sorry. Uh, sorry, opera fans. Sorry, opera fans. Please still like us. Please still download our podcast. <laughs> well, enough about your book facts. Let's go into movie facts. Yeah, tell us, hit us with them movie facts. Hit them with them movie facts. All right, so the movie <laughs> stars Jeff Bridges, and mm-hmm. Jeff Bridges has been connected to this project for a very long time. So the movie came out in 2014, but some of the mm-hmm. earliest screenplays and scripts were actually around in the 90s, a couple of years after the book came out because it was so popular. And mm-hmm. Jeff Bridges and his father actually love this movie so much that initially his father, Lloyd Bridges, was cast as the giver. Mm-hmm. And they actually have recordings of them testing out uh, some of the screenplays and reading some scripts uh, for the entire movie that's out there somewhere. Dang. I want to see his version, honestly. Yeah. So next time we marathon, it's opera version, then Jeff Bridges garage version yes i want to see both uh however this version was never made because lloyd Mm -hmm. bridges unfortunately died in the late 90s so the movie was sort of in this limbo state for a while it was bought by the weinstein company a very Mm -hmm. uh infamous company now uh but in 2014 they approached jeff letting them know with or without him, the movie was going to be made. And even though Jeff was not happy about some of mm-hmm. the decisions, uh, he decided to go into the project anyway because yeah. he, I'm guessing out of some respect for his dad, but he also just loved, was very attached to this project. So yeah. he decided to go into it anyway. Let me tell you, when I think about this movie, I basically just think of Jeff Bridges. So yes, he did he, it. He did his job. He he <laughs> owned this movie in a lot of ways, but he's not the only star. They did get Meryl Streep into this somehow. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Given the best the best non part the best <laughs> she could find in a movie. <laughs> yes. And she wasn't she even kills it, she so. kills it, even though she wasn't even filming on set. She was filming for some other movie at the time. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And it also stars a Skarsgård, one of them, I can't remember his name, and two yeah, younger actors playing Jonas and... Um, uh, and you're forgetting the most important role. Hmm. Our girl T-Swift is on there somehow for some reason. Let's let's put a pin in T-Swift. <laughs> I think we can't let T-Swift out of the bat too early. And she has a speaking and singing part. She has... About five minutes more than she should have ever gotten in this movie. But we'll, we'll save that. We'll save that yeah, when we start we'll, we'll going that, through yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that is the movie. It sort of came out during the dystopian craves of the mid 2010s. So it kind of makes sense when it came out. Oh, yeah. Did I tell you when it got greenlit? When did it get greenlit? Uh, the minute that Hunger Games came out, all of a sudden they're like, oh, dang, let's got, do this too. We need some of that Katniss and, money. And it shows. It definitely shows. <laughs> We're showing our hands real early here. but A little bit, right? Yeah. <laughs> hmm, I wonder which one we like better. Mm, I don't know yet. Uh, so now that we got all the facts, let's dive into the plot together, shall we? Uh, so the way we'll do this is we'll break it down by acts. Not everything follows like the classic act structure, but that's kind of what we'll use for our discussion. So act one will be the first 25%, act two, the middle 50 and act three, the last 25%. Mm -hmm. And oh boy, I think I'm going to be talking about the first act quite a bit. Yeah, the first act, the first act is where they make the bold departure from the subtle hand of the book to the punch in the face of the mid 2000s movie. (laughs) (laughs) And they make it hard, starting with the voiceover, the freaking voiceover, starting from the very beginning, the narration. Yeah, to get some context, I would say my favorite act of the entire book is the first act is the first 75 pages because Lois Lowry does a fantastic job at making you think this society is utopian because what kind of society 
can you actually sit down with your family and talk about your feelings? Like that's, in, yeah. that's incredible. Regularly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Regularly. Like, and it seems like a very healthy society. It seemed like something you'd want to be in no crime, very organized. Nobody has to cook. Exactly. And it's so slow building. Yeah. And it takes so much time. And I think what else she does well is, is through Jonas, and his like nervousness about being named a 12 where he's going to get assigned his his profession basically he talks about being a you know a 3 or 4 or 5 or 6 a 7 and you know everything that goes up to that and at each stage instead of having like a birthday they basically like celebrate everybody at once and they get given a thing to show their progression and so like there was one where like when you turn um, when you turn seven, instead of having a dress that buttons in or coat that buttons in the back, it buttons in the front to show your independence. And so it feels like everything in the society is very purposeful and thoughtful, which is a nice idea, right? It makes it feel very utopian. And then the movie comes along <laughs> <laughs> and strips all that subtlety away. <laughs> it's as if they took the my favorite 75 pages yeah. and turned it into about 30 seconds of narration over the like sweeping helicopter shots of the society. Yes. Yeah. So here's something that I like to do whenever I am reading or watching something that's going to make me sound even nerdier than I've sounded already. Okay. So, let's do this. So when I watch or read anything, I like to pay attention to exactly when the inciting incident happens. So like the thing that springs everything off exactly what happens at the 50% mark, because that's always like a shift in the storytelling, like something big happens or the story is reframed in some way. And then like what launches the, the action. And so those are the three things that I always like to pay attention to. Um, and I think if they come at certain points in time, like in the book or the movie, uh, I judge that being a very tightly, like I like a tightly written good structure to a story. Mm -hmm. So here's everything that happens in the first 25% of the book. Okay. Jonas kind of hangs out with his friends, talks to his family, goes to the ceremony, gets named the, the receiver. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds about right. Here's everything that happened in the freaking movie. Um, all of that. So Jonas hangs out, hangs out very awkwardly with his friends. He's like an 18 year old making the worst weird jokes with his other 18 year old friends. Um, he does that. He goes to the thing. He gets named the giver. He, he meets the giver. He gets given all these memories. He starts interacting with the rest of his friends. He starts acting weirder, making his sister dance with him. And, and then it, it comes all the way up. He he forces his friend to like slide down a um hill. A, I don't a, know. A huge cement hill in the middle of town for some reason. All this stuff. All that happens in the first like 25% of the movie. Like literally so much stuff. <laughs> yes. And that's probably its its biggest crime to this yeah. story is that it just speeds the- through it. The best part about this story is how it tricks the audience. Yeah. It tricks the reader into thinking this society is really not that bad. And then out of nowhere, maybe not out of nowhere, but very subtly, I should say, it sort of flips the script and you feel like Jonas. You feel like you're figuring everything out for the first time. Whereas in this movie, you figure out everything's wrong because the narrator told you it's a dystopia. I think that's word for word what the narrator said. You would think this is a utopia, but it's not like on his bike in like the first minute of this movie. And yeah, I think that like, the entire book's discussion is about what's worth it, right? What's worth giving up. And so you spend this time in this community that's not really bad. Like no one has bad intentions necessarily. They've just given up some stuff. And then at the end of the book, we spend time with Jonas apart from the society and right. He's hungry. He's tired. He's exposed to the elements and he wishes that he could be back, but he's not willing. He still wants to choose for everybody to have these memories. And so that's like the point of it. But we that would never work in the movie because we know immediately because not only not only is this place, I mean, not only does Jonas tell us that this place is not great, 
but it feels creepy from like day one. Parents, creepy. Friends, creepy. Everything they're doing, every time they laugh is like a, a, a group, creepy. Everything about it is creepy. Yes, and I think that some of the performances were just unnecessarily stiff in this first act. Because I remember in the book uh, reading about, I forget what his dad's name is, but their dad Dad? was a very, I think it was just dad. Dad, yeah. (laughs) Uh, The scars guard in the movie. Um, The dad was very warm. He was very playful. The mom was a little bit more stiff, but she seemed just more like the stern parent, honestly. And no one really seemed out of place. It just seemed like they were normal people in a unite in a unique society. Yeah, that's all. Yeah, Skarsgård and uh, Katie Holmes, right? That's the mom. Yes. Yeah, they are like they're acting in like a horror movie. They are not in this movie. <laughs> they are not in a team dystopian drama. They are in a straight up gonna murder their kids at the end of this movie. Movie. Yes. And in fact, eventually Katie Holmes does become this weird villain, which again, just never, it it never, it feels out of place because the parents, although they didn't have all these complex emotions, so to say, or they couldn't express their complex emotions, you could still feel like they had those emotions. They just didn't have the words for that in the book. So all the characters felt very cold and it instantly felt like, okay, this is, this is a dystopian place. Yeah. Like this should not it be felt happening. more like everybody was brainwashed. Whereas like in the, in the book, you don't really feel that way. You just feel like everyone's a little bit ignorant about how things really should be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, is there anything you liked in this first act? What did I like in the first act? <laughs> Cause right I now forgot. we're dunking um, on the first act of the movie. Yeah, the movie. Um, I liked, I liked the way they imagined everything. I thought that was really interesting. Um, I, I liked like the, like manicured lawns and like the housing. I thought that was really interesting. Um, no, that's pretty much it. (laughs) I mean, for me and something that I was initially very excited about was the idea of it being shot in black and white. Mm -hmm. I was happy that the director decided to Mm -hmm, go black mm -hmm. and white from the get-go. Yeah, I like that too. It does quickly reveal to be like a weird society. Uh, It's the one thing that brought to the story that the book couldn't have because you couldn't visualize the fact that there was no color. Um, Did you know how long the black and white actually lasted in the movie? I don't know how long. Probably not that long. 13 minutes. <laughs> mm, he really let us steep in yeah. that for a bit. In the huh? book, we don't we don't even get until halfway through the book. And then even then he struggles to like it takes him a while to get each color. In this one, you're just like punched in the face with it because of a sunset that he saw. So in conclusion, act one in the book, A plus. <laughs> that was probably my favorite yeah. part. And for well, movie. You know, what What a movie wants to do in its first act is set up likable characters, give an inkling about the growing conflict, um, you know, really have you root for what the protagonist is doing. And I just really didn't get that vibe. Like, it, that, it didn't work for me in the first act. I didn't really like Jonas. There's a lot of, like, staring into his eyes, into his face as he stares off into the distance. That's really awkward. And he... He plays it okay, but he, he plays it really stiff. But everybody around him is playing. All the characters are stiff. So it's yes. hard for me to get on board with this Jonas is what I'm saying. It's pretty much the definition of show, don't yeah. tell. Um, one thing I did like, Meryl Streep. Amazing. From the first time she's on screen. I mean, Meryl Streep gets on screen. It doesn't matter the context. Yeah. You're going to have some some sort of enjoyment. Even though her character does not exist, really, it's like briefly mentioned in the books. For what she had, I you know, she did a fine job yeah. with. She literally has no lines in the books and somehow she steals the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, so moving into the middle 50% of the story, um, we had some we have some things developing. We have a teen romance. We have Jonas uh, getting more memories. Um, what are your thoughts? So f- in the book, I think the best part about 
this entire thing was the fact that Jonas was 12. And during this act, it felt like he was growing up. It felt like he started coming into his own. He started realizing things. It was almost like this, you know, symbol for the loss of like this childhood innocence that kind of goes away once you get older. And you could really see that as he started gaining more and more memories. And it was a very, again, slow, subtle process of him gaining different colors slowly, of him gaining different feelings, understanding what love meant, what fear meant, all those sort of things. Whereas in the movie, uh, he still goes through that and... Uh, He still goes through this like realization that everything's different. But the fact that the actor looks like he's like 25. Yeah, he is 25 actually. He's 24. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so he is 25. It loses some of that spark for me. Yeah, I think it's harder to take – I think it's hard to take it seriously to be honest because like a 12-year-old who's who's in awe of a snowfall is endearing. An 18-year-old who looks like – but who's really like a 24-year-old <laughs> who's in awe of snow feels dumb. And I think that's like the trade-off that they – like they really wanted this teen romance to happen, which was fine. Um, I don't think it did anything for anything. I think the actress that they have for uh, for What's-Her-Face was great. Other than that, not great. Not great for – not great. Um but I think that's that's kind of what they ended up giving up by wanting to have like this like appeal to like young teens who already care about Twilight and stuff like that. Um, but this was ne- this story was never going to be that story. No, no, it never was yeah. going to be. Now I will say that initially when I watched this movie, I thought the change mm-hmm. to color was pretty mm-hmm. good. You know, it was very interesting. Yeah, I liked it too, but. But I think once tells your real story, but, tells your real feelings. Yeah, let me just dunk <laughs> on this some more. I, I think that after like rewatching this, because I accidentally had to rent it twice from Amazon, and that meant that I watched the <laughs> first half of the movie no. twice. Okay. okay, yeah, big yeah. mistake. Don't don't get halfway through a rental and then wait a week yeah, to watch it again. Uh, no, it's not. After rewatching it, it sort of frustrated me a little bit because, again, not to compare it constantly to the book, but, but that, that is, is what its we're doing here, material. So. <laughs> but wait a second. That's the concept of this entire thing. Uh, in the book, he would slowly gain colors based on the memories he started yeah. receiving. So he would see uh, something red and he'd gain the color red. He would see something blue, gain the color blue, and so on. In this movie... Uh, they bring up them in a in an interesting way where at first you get like a red color space and then a yellow color space comes in and and so on. But they don't have solid memories attached to them. It's just like he sees an entire sunset, but he only gets one color or he sees like it just felt a little. Well, I feel like that that uh, memory where he got the sunset is the only memory where he was given color. And then they had to move on to like the next things. Well, because the entire so in the book, this entire 50 percent area you know, it's like a, a little over a hundred pages is just of Jonas collecting these memories, right? It's supposed to be a year in the time of the book. Whereas in the movie, he gets all of this in like 20 minutes, I want to say. A week, a week and, and a half. half. Yeah. So like uh, 20 minutes of like screen time, that's it. He gets all the memories because whereas in, in the book, the halfway point where things shift is right when Jonas gets his first memory. He's having a discussion and the chapter ends where the giver is like, call me the giver. It's like, <laughs> um, and then in the, in the movie, the 50% point is actually the war scene. So it's where Jonas gets hit in the face with, oh, some memories aren't great memories. Some experience aren't good memories. And he like wanders out and sees everybody playing and he's like, they don't even know. Um, and then it's like this, he immediately learns about release right after that. So they really like shoved it all in like this huge experience into like the minimal amount of screen time because they wanted to have time to do like a motorcycle chase and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, what did you think of the memories? Cause I got a lot of opinions on it, but what did you think of the actual Ooh, flashbacks? They're terrible. <laughs> <laughs> 
They're so bad. There's literally like two where it's Jonas and they look like they were filmed in my backyard with my props on my phone. And then the <laughs> rest little- of it, no, mm, no, that's accurate. And then the rest of it is like B-roll from Shutterstock that they just layered and cut really fast too. It did feel like they ran out of footage and they got some Shutterstock and yeah. or they had a minute of footage, but they needed to extend it to two minutes. So instead they cut half the frames out, added a blur effect to make it seem like you were on some bad trip during it. Yeah, they like they spent all their money on that, like the set piece where he jumps to the, the ravine and then didn't have any money to fly anybody to like real locations. <laughs> That's my theory. <laughs> It's rough because, and I mean, they were always going to be at a disadvantage because in the book, you're seeing it from Jonas's point of view, right? You're in Jonas's head experiencing these things. But even like, it could have been such a beautiful moment of, of cinematography even to just take, literally just take what's already been written for you and just put it on the screen. It's not... Yes. What was definitely lost was the fact that instead of choosing individual vignettes to Mm -hmm. display a feeling, because we've all seen the first 10 minutes of Up, you can create emotion in a very short amount of time in a small vignette. But instead, they chose to give you uh, quick cuts Mm, and stock footage. What if Pixar had made this movie? Don't. Mm. I don't want to imagine how great that movie would be. I would love to see this animated more than anything else. <laughs> That'd actually. be amazing. Um, yes. Yeah. No, I think the, the biggest, I think the biggest foul, cause to a certain point in the movie, you're just like, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Okay. We get it. It's these water, waterfall experiences. You know, this was 2014. So maybe we'll, we'll give them a pass a little bit. I guess that's not that long ago. Is it? It's only five years ago. Yeah, yeah you're acting no like this was made in the um, 90s. <laughs> early 2000s. This feels like an early 2000s move to me. Yes. Um, but I think the biggest offense is actually that war scene. So like oh, yeah. in the book, it's the first – it's not the first because there's a couple of bad memories that he gives him um, before that. But it's the one where Jonas really starts thinking about death. And he's in a war scene – And this guy next to him is dying and begging for some water. And Jonas reaches over, gives him some water, and then he dies in front of him. And it's this great kind of gut-wrenching moment where Jonas understands, like, desperation and hopelessness and war. Like, all the things that are around that for the very first time. And then in the book, he leaves later and he sees his friends playing a game uh, of war. And so they're pretending to shoot each other, but their society has no guns or violence. So they don't really know what it is. And they're clutching their chests and falling to the ground. And it's this like great unveiling moment that everybody growing up can relate to where you're like, oh, shiz, this is what this actually is. Mm-hmm. And in the in the movie, it's literally just like shaky cam. He there's that guy who's calling out to Jonas, and then he shoots somebody from a tree, and then he like yells frantically and runs outside. But they've removed the scene of the kids because his friend in the in the book is the leader. It's like the director of games, and in the movie they made him into a drone pilot because of action reasons, and so mm-hmm. he can't be doing that. So instead, everyone's just running around having fun, and Jonas is acting like a super big weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, and so much of like that scene was like so much of the meaning meaningfulness of that scene was sucked out, which is a summary of kind of how I feel about this book so, or this movie. Yes, they do a lot of that where they take. Uh, something with a lot of emotional impact and they they gloss over it a little bit more for the sake of getting through the movie. Yeah, because they really want that motorcycle jump scene. You're really... Well, let's wait until Act 3 because <laughs> we're going to get to that sick motorcycle jump scene, but there's one thing we need to talk about. Oh, yeah. Yes, and it is the inclusion of Taylor Swift. Now, Taylor Swift plays a character named Rosemary mm-hmm. from the books mm-hmm. who initially was the receiver, was it like a decade 
or so before yeah. Jonas, yeah. something like that. And there's a whole backstory with Rosemary. And to play her, they chose Taylor Swift because Rosemary, instead of being gifted with the ability to see color, is gifted with the ability to hear music, I guess, even though there's no music uh, technically. So I don't know where she gets that. I guess she can just play the piano pretty well after she starts getting memories. pretty well. So what was your thoughts on uh, our our Tay girl being in this? It was very distracting. <laughs> <laughs> there's I oh go on. Well, there's like there's a scene in the beginning where you just see her back and she says something and at first I thought she was like this Disney star that kind of sounded like her and I couldn't remember cuz I had this vague when I rewatched this I had this vague memory of there being this distracting cameo but i couldn't remember who it was and then later there's this entire scene that plays out with taylor swift at the piano and she's singing with jeff bridges and it's weird it's really really weird it's weird to include it it's a weird thing because of so many things that they had cut out even about rosemary it's weird that it's just like taylor swift but that's kind of how i feel like with a lot of these actors where it's like, I don't remember Jeff Bridges as anybody but Jeff Bridges. <laughs> yes. They, their reputation precedes themselves for, sure. for, for their roles. What about roles, you? How, how sure. did you digest the T-Swift uh, inclusion? So now that I've had to think about it, I don't actually hate it mm. that much. I don't hate the idea because I understand the Weinstein Company, they got to make their money. Mm-hmm. They got to make their money back mm-hmm. on this. And the only way to do it is to get a celebrity name. Get them and yes. Yeah. And uh, honestly, if they went into that scene and Taylor was playing Shake It Off on the piano, I would have given this movie a 10 out of 10. That would have been 100% so funny. would have had to watch She's it. She's just like clumsily uh, playing the piano and then all of a sudden breaks out into, into like teardrops on my guitar. That would have been so good. <laughs> yes. Incredible. Uh, but I actually, I don't hate it. It's just they didn't do anything with the Rosemary character. Yes. That is that is the worst part is that in the book, it is such mm-hmm. a major mystery of what happened to Rosemary. Where, whereas in with the movie, it's just kind of, it comes and goes very quickly and actually doesn't really have that much of an impact yeah, on the overall Yeah, it's something that like I, it's a, sl- it's a pet peeve of mine in in books, it happens, but a lot of times in I see it in movies or shows where, like, a female character is there and could have a really good story, but she's just kind of there to add tragedy or backstory to a male character. And I'm sure they weren't yes. doing it on purpose, but in the book, Rosemary is basically this hero who learns these memories, and at the time, um, there was no rule against her being scheduled for release, and in in the commu- this community release basically means suicide like it basically means killing them uh so she signs up for release in the middle of her training and when she dies all of her memories gets unleashed to the community and everybody panics and at first it's painted as like a cowardly moment and then as you understand a little bit more as Jonas understands she's really painted as a hero and they took all of that away from her just very very quickly. quickly. And all she is in the movie is this sad memory that Jeff Bridges plays over and over again on hologram um, when he is sad and wants to be sad. And that's it. That's all that they do with her. They don't even really talk about her and what happened to her. Just that she's dead and Jeff Bridges is sad about it. Mm-hmm. Which is, to me, is the crime in this movie. Not so much that Tay Swift isn't there. Although, and it still gives me a good chuckle every time I see her on and screen. And it is hinted that she is a love child between Jeff Bridges and Meryl Streep. I, uh, it's there. We'll get into that. There. But I don't see... Mm-hmm. Ah. It's there. Yeah. Okay. There. Okay, fine. <laughs> I, you could see it. It's, in, it's somewhere. Oh, no, no, no. You it's, just got to dig around. It's definitely there. Okay, it's yeah. there. All right. <laughs> you gave into my fan theory very, very quickly. I didn't even have to convince you about it. <laughs> I'll just, you because know, I guess you we'll, just kind of we'll, broke me down. <laughs> we haven't even talked about it yet. We'll circle back around. I have plenty of things to say about we'll it. We'll circle back around. Um, okay, so the last 25%, your thoughts, as, as both of these stories come to a conclusion, uh, what did you think of each interpretation? 
Well, I think the problem with Act 3 just stems into the fact that an adaptation of this book is incredibly difficult because there is no antagonist. There is not one antagonist you can point to because the antagonist in the book is the society. It is the dystopian setting that they're in, whereas in the movie, it is Meryl Streep and this invisible force field. Yeah. So they needed something to build and towards. Katie Holmes, Katie Holmes Be- becomes um. I guess really she sort of, yeah, she sort of becomes a villain. <laughs> um, yeah, there's that. And then, I mean, it is it is Jonas versus the society for sure because he's questioning the norms. But a lot of it is, you know, Jonas's own idea about what's best for people, right? So w- whether to keep giving up certain things to stay safe or to choose something different. And even when he's out in the wilderness, like the, the climax of the book really doesn't even happen until like the last page or so of the book because it's – it's Jonas realizing everything he gave up by leaving the society. And he has these moments where he wants to turn back and he feels really responsible for Gabe and he's giving Gabe memories in order to like keep him warm and stuff like that. And up until that last moment, um, Jonas, you know, goes down the sled on the other side and he's like, yes, this was the right, this was the right choice. Right. And so it's, it's his choice. That's really the climax that the entire book is leading up to it. And it's really hard to do that in a movie. And so I'm not surprised that they didn't do it. I just really wish they hadn't turned a beloved childhood story into this weird teen action romance. Yeah. yeah. It it got turned into a, a teen romance uh, action dystopian movie when the book is nothing like any of the dystopian books that have come out in the past 10 years. It is a lot slower. It is a lot. Uh, it doesn't give as much texture to the world. It is much more ambiguous and left for us to sort of fill in the blanks. And the movie decided to fill those blank in or fill those blanks in with the hunger games or any other dystopian type yeah. story you could find. So what's the what's the one thing that you would change to make either the book or the movie better? So as far as the book, I think it's great. I think the only thing I want to see is like just how the society reacts to getting memories, which yeah. we did get uh, slightly in the movie. And I guess that was 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 the one saving grace of this movie that I, I liked a little bit was seeing color return in a very corny type you, of way. But you like it was all the slow cam zoom ins to each character's face as they felt color for the first time in their lives. <laughs> Listen, you got to have your money shot. Mm-hmm. I can't, I can't fault them for that money shot. I don't know. I, there is no like one big change for mm-hmm. me. I think it is the entire structure of the movie needs to slow down. Mm-hmm. Like if this was written to be a lot slower like how i imagine jeff bridges was originally looking to have this movie come then it would be a completely different movie than what it is now yeah subtlety i could see subtlety being a big one it'd be hard i don't know what would so for the for the book i i agree with you i think that you know, it's it's only a couple hundred pages long. You could literally read in an afternoon. And it's hard for me to say, like, give me more because it's meant to be a middle grade, right? It's supposed to be something where you consume it like that. And the ambiguity is kind of part of that, too. I do think if we would have gotten maybe like one other point of view, kind of like how more modern day YAs are written, where It'll shift from character to character. And maybe we got Jonas and then we had Fiona on the other end. I think that would have been very interesting. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's an expectation we can put on a book that was written in 1993. That's kind of the first of its kind, though. So um, I agree. I think the fun of the movie was being able to see more of this world, right? Um, The parts that I would change, the one thing that I would change... About this movie, honestly, if I just had to pick one, if I couldn't nitpick all the things that I really, really, really <laughs> want to nitpick, um, it would definitely be how old they are. Yes. Yeah. I think it was I think it really hurt this movie that they were so old. And I think I think stuff like Stranger Things have has and stuff like that that's been really popular with child actors lately has proven that you can if you try, you know, if you get the right child actor for the role. 
it can really work. And I think if this was made today with people who are actually 10 or 12 years old, it would have a really powerful impact. Yes, that loss of childhood innocence Mm -hmm. or uh, naiveness that comes with growing up would actually be viewable in the movie because you would have actors that were around that age. Uh, Okay. So we, we were, we did the gracious change. So let's do a nitpick one. What is your one nitpick? What is the one thing that if you could change in this movie, you would. And just to be clear, when we say nitpick, it is something that has no bearing on the plot whatsoever. It is just something that is your personal preference. What would it be? There's so many to choose from. It is like, this is possibly the most difficult question because I have so many things I I want to say. But if there would be one, it would actually be their house. Really? Because in my head, yes, in my head, and this will be probably a theme when we're comparing books and movies, but in my head, their house felt like a home. In this, it did not feel like a home. And this kind of goes back to everything feeling dystopian when everything is plastic and glass one that's not comfortable like i don't want to sit on a couch in this universe it doesn't look comfy like it didn't feel lived in it just felt like a plastic house which i guess makes sense everything same but in my head things felt a little bit warmer yeah i I actually i didn't have a problem with that because in my mind Because I guess they don't, they don't ever, you know, no, I'm just going to say her name wrong. What's her name? Lowry. (laughs) I'm so sorry, Lois. Uh, Lois Lowry uh, was at a disadvantage, you know, describing things because she couldn't use color, right? And so I think when she described things, uh, you had to kind of infer quite a lot. And so I totally get that you painted this whole, this, your own picture in your mind about what everything looked like. Uh, For me, I was actually picturing it kind of pretty similar to how they ended up portraying it. Uh, Not like the super high-tech house thing, which is going to end up being my nitpick, but um, that it was kind of sparse and minimalist. That's kind of how I saw it. You know, they talk about only having the dictionary and the rule of books as the books that they have in their house. Mm -hmm. They only have one toy, like one comfort item that they have to give up when they're nine years old or something like that. Um, So to me, they weren't even allowed, like Jonas gets yelled at in the book for taking home an apple at the beginning. Um, So they're not even allowed to have like random, like extra things in their house. They're only allowed to have the necessities. And so to me, it always read as a very minimalist house. So um, it actually didn't bug me that much. Do you want to hear my nitpick? Uh, Of course. My nitpick was how freaking high tech everything was. I hated it so much. (laughs) I feel like this is very similar to mine, but in a different vein. So go on. So in the movie, everything is so high tech. They have holograms and they have um, every, I hate it all. Everything was super high tech and the security systems were high tech and they have drones and and all this stuff. And I totally get why they wanted to do it because it was futuristic, futuristic, dystopian. But the one thing that I really hated was that. So this is the actual nitpick hidden in this nitpick. (laughs) Okay, we've Um, reached the the apex of the nitpick. Okay, let me finally hear it. Okay, so in the book Jonas has this dream he's 18 he's 18 ugh, he's 12 and so he's beginning to like a friend of his and so he has a dream about her where he's trying to get her to take a bath and he tells his parents about it the next morning and they're like oh it's the stirrings it's the sexual awakening everybody's so upset about so as soon as that happens in their community uh kids have to start taking these pills that basically like basically get rid of that because um, having kids is left to essentially surrogates. Uh, You know, people who are moms and dads aren't really related. Uh, A person has to apply to be put in, uh, to be given a spouse and then together they apply to have a kid and then they can have a second kid if they want. So nobody's related. Nobody's doing the devil's tango. And so they have to take these pills uh, to make sure that all that stays the same. (laughs) I'm sorry. As your little brother, I need to call you out whenever you say the words devil's tango. Well, I do talk about it all the time, so it shouldn't be as written. No, I'm just kidding. Are we on like Frasier or something? This feels like... 
Yeah, they have to <laughs> they have to take these pills and in the in the movie Okay, so in the book, Jonas decides at a certain point to stop taking these pills because he doesn't want to suppress his feelings anymore. And the same decision happens in the movie. But in the movie, they're taking regular injections that literally everybody has to take always. So even like his six-year-old sister takes them for some reason. And it's this little button that they put their hands on. uh, And it's like a little like noise. Yeah. Yeah. And um to get away with it, Jonas takes an apple, pricks his finger to put a little bit of blood on there to trick the sensor, and then angles that little that apple with the drop of blood right at the point of the injection site. If if I had to do that, if somebody told me to do this, it would take me twenty minutes to get this job done. And Jonas is like, whoop, 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 and then he leaves the house. He does it. He does it while Meryl Streep is a hologram in his home. He does it like right under her nose. And I don't know how and I don't know why they did that because they could have just given them pills. Nothing would have changed if they just gave him pills. And the act of not taking a pill is much more visceral to me than the act of this elaborate scheme of putting blood on an apple and putting the apple on the sensor and blah, 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 blah. It does nothing. And it was so distracting because there's this part in the movie where he tells Fiona to also do that. And it's this ridiculous explanation. (laughs) And even she's like, what? Why would I do that? And I'm like, good point, Fiona. Why would you do that? Yeah, it's a little bit convoluted. And yes, very. (laughs) I will say that they should have just given them pills. It makes a thousand times more sense. I guess maybe they want to include an apple as like a nod to the book people. Be like, ooh, see, we included an apple in this. But I guess. I don't know. It was, it was. I don't know why they did it. I literally cannot think of a single reason to do that, to do one over the other. Now. We've been trashing on this movie. I think it's only fair that we we say at least we, one we, nice thing about this movie. Okay, okay, yeah, we can do this. We can do this second. Okay. What is your nice thing? I'm going to force you to say one nice thing about this movie because a lot of people spend a lot of time and money on this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the nice thing that I can say is... As exhausting as it is sometimes, I'm sorry I'm already putting a cliff note on this nice thing. Um, As exhausting as it is sometimes, you can really tell Jeff Bridges is super passionate about this movie. And I think that his enthusiasm carries a lot of this movie. A hundred percent. I would say that all of the actual emotional Mm -hmm. moments in this movie come from when he's acting as the giver, even though the writing probably isn't the greatest for some of his uh, performances. He knocks it out of the park. You could tell it was a very emotional role for him. And you could tell it was a role he really cared about because he put so much effort into this. uh, And it really does show. By far, he had the best performance. And I could watch one. I could watch Jeff Bridges be Jeff Bridges forever. Mm, But I can see him... I, I can see him in the movie that he wants to make, and he is being perfect in yeah, that movie. Yeah, I can see that too. Um, I would pair that with Meryl Streep being also incredible. Um, even though she doesn't really have that much to do, and she's kind of like this cardboard cutout of a villain uh, to stand in for this movie, she is so creepy and absolutely nails it. There's this scene where she asks... Jonas's friend basically go out and kill him, the the drone pilot. Um, and it mm-hmm. is so scary. It was like the most tense part of the entire film. And it's just Meryl Streep. And she all she does is she brushes a piece of paper off of a table. And I was like, damn, Meryl, you're so good. <laughs> <laughs> Dang, Meryl, you're going <laughs> to kill those fools. Gosh, Meryl. Yeah. I was like, oh, shoot. She wants him dead. <laughs> So that I will I will also give this movie. Uh Jeff Bridges and Meryl Streep showed up. I yeah, appreciate it. I will agree with you. Yeah. So uh shoot off of that. Do you want to hear my fan theory? All right, let me hear your fan theory. 
Okay, you've already accepted my fan theory early in the episode, which I was very shocked by, but I think it's because outside of episode, I have already talked your ear off about this yes, and you've just come to, yes, so I am convinced that there is a draft of this movie floating around where Meryl Streep and Jeff Bridges' characters are totally doing it, like are totally <laughs> have a thing going on, either presently because they bicker like a couple who's going through some issues or previously um, because even in the book, it's hinted that the giver at some point had a wife and had a kid who I think ends up being Rosemary. It's very ambiguous, but um, kind of translates into what's happening in the movie between Jeff Bridges and Meryl Streep. So either they are just incredible actors who are playing off of each other and ignoring everybody else in the room, which I respect. That's probably for the best. Or there's this version, an early version that they ended up cutting stuff out where they totally had a thing going on. And and Rosemary, a.k.a. Taylor Swift, was totally their love child that they convinced the rest of the community to just forget about because they have memory powers. So here's the thing. I think this theory is absolutely buck wild and I don't agree with it at all. But <laughs> there is only one little hint that I could see this working. And it's the fact that for some reason, Meryl Streep's character can seem to understand emotions in some sort of capacity. She has yep. some sort of capacity for hatred or Mm-hmm. I don't know. She, that nobody she, else has in the entire movie. She yeah. seems to be in on it when everyone else isn't. So yes. I'll give you that, that she seems to be a little bit more self-aware. There's especially this scene that's the climax of the movie where they're all gathered in this room to watch Fiona die because of reasons, because of plot reasons. And um, because she's lo- she's the love interest, of course. And... Jeff Bridges is pleading with Meryl Streep and being like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And everyone's like, "Like, why do you care? It's just release, who cares, blah, blah, blah. They don't really care about death. And Jeff Bridges is like, don't remember Rosemary, remember her death, blah, blah, blah. And Meryl <laughs> Streep is like stone cold, I don't care, I have to do this for my community. But underneath the surface, because she's Meryl Streep and amazing, you can tell she's torn and in turmoil because she secretly loved loved Rosemary too because she's her daughter. You're not re- – so this is not you reading into things that aren't there. These are all 100% oh, yeah. there. Yes. Oh, no, totally contextual. Yes. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm convinced that was an earlier draft of this movie and they cut it down because – Meryl Streep and Jeff Bridges were stealing the show from the teenagers and they need to shift it back to the teenagers. (laughs) I get it. You just got to have your hot teens and that has to be the focus of the film. You can't have these oldies stealing all the romance. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. All right. Fine. (laughs) Fine. 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 All right. So, David, uh, we're at the end of our discussion here. Would you recommend reading this book? Holy crap, yes. Like, this movie's incredible. Well, not this movie. This book is incredible. Like, the fact that I didn't read this earlier is a shame. I can see why it's a required reading. I think it should belong in the same sort of discussion when people talk about, um, like, 1984. They talk about uh, Brave New World and all these sort of uh, dystopian-type books that are sort of allegories for how Mm -hmm. we may turn out. And I think that this book deserves to be in those conversations. Yeah, I agree. So I absolutely loved the book. Amanda, would you recommend watching this movie? Would I wish this movie on anybody? Um, Well, so if you are looking for a bad movie to watch... No, I don't recommend this movie. I think there are a lot of other really fun, bad movies that you can go and spend your time on. Um, If you are looking to enjoy a visual representation of a beloved childhood book, definitely not because this will have nothing for you. Maybe you can watch a couple YouTube clips if you really wanted to like visualize it, but it pretty much ruins every good scene from the book, unfortunately. (laughs) Yes. Um, If you are a huge Jeff Bridges fan uh, and you want to see him act in the only movie he's ever acted with Meryl Streep, maybe, maybe. 
I mean, he didn't act with Meryl Streep, though. She was digitally recreated in um, all of her scenes. She had, I mean, yeah, she was a hologram for a lot, which makes more sense now that I know that she wasn't actually there to film with the cast. I do think she was in that last scene with him, actually, in the, the killing booth or whatever. Um... I don't know if you want to if you want to peek into the secret romance between Jeff Bridges and Meryl Streep. Maybe. Otherwise, there we go. No. I, otherwise, that's pretty much it. I think that's a great place to end it on. If you are looking for a movie to watch a secret romance between some of the two best actors in Hollywood that have never been on screen before, yeah. this is the movie but to watch. But keep in mind, they're only uh, their romance is only probably six minutes of this entire film and this film is 97 minutes so you're gonna do something else while you're watching it i guess spend your time wisely uh and don't don't spend your money to buy it (laughs) don't accidentally rent it on amazon (laughs) twice yeah don't do that just do it once please yeah go and go and borrow it from uh an overly optimistic friend who purchased it on dvd agreed So uh, this is the first episode of this podcast. We Mm -hmm. really don't have an outro yet Mm -hmm. or anything. Yeah. So I I guess go and consume more media. Go and if there's there's more episodes, download those. If you're listening to this, please. It'd be really nice. Maybe by this point, we don't have these created, but maybe we have social links that they could go check us out. Uh, Just pretend like I'm plugging those right now. Yeah, we're probably uh, on Instagram. Probably not Twitter. I feel like we're not cool enough to be on Twitter yet. I might make one. You might be Twitter. Okay. I might make one. I might make a Tumblr. That sounds fun. There we go. See you guys. This is what you came here for, for yeah. the first episode of a podcast. Yeah, but like definitely, <laughs> definitely follow us. Definitely like and subscribe. Definitely, um, you know, do what you can to support us because we're doing this in our free time after work. And maybe if we get to do this in the daytime, we will sound more smart. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be nice. I agree with that. <laughs>